Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Shani Tarragon, and today we're going to continue with Parshat Bayikra, Perik Bit, continuing the discussion that we began yesterday at the beginning of Parshat Bayikra, which describes the capability, the option, and the encouragement of the Torah for man to offer a voluntary sacrifice. We've already seen one of three voluntary sacrifices, sacrifices which a person decides of his own free will to bring to the Mishkan, following which we're also going to continue with the obligatory sacrifices. The various options that are open to a person wishing to bring a voluntary sacrifice are the burnt offering, the Ola of chapter one, the Mencha that we're going to learn today in chapter two, or the Shlamim that we'll speak about tomorrow in chapter three. While the Yola and Shlamim are animal sacrifices, the Mencha is not. As we find in Vayikra Perek Bet, V'nefesh ki takriv korban Mencha ladunai, solet yiyya korbano, v'yatzak ala Hashemen, v'natan aleha levona. When one brings a meal offering to Hashem, his offering should be a fine flour. He shall pour oil upon it and put the frankincense upon the this offering. He brings this mencha to Aaron's sons, the Kohanim. He then takes a komet, a handful of this fine flour, together with the oil, together with uh, the frankincense, the livona that has been placed upon the, the flour offering. And the kohena takes just this komet as an askara, a little memorial that he places upon the mizbeach, the altar. And uh, this is considered, as we've seen by the ola, a reach nichoach lahashem. And that which is left, which is going to be majority of the meal offering, is going to belong to Aaron and his sons. And this is considered Kodesh Kodashim Lahashim. Interestingly, we find that generally the Karbanot, with regard to what the Kohen may do with the Korban, eat of the Korban, or at times not eat of the Korban, is not mentioned in Parshat Vayikra, but rather in Parshat Sav. So we already see an interesting anomaly when it comes to the Karban Mincha. But I, I would like to address another one of the major questions that we find, particularly with regard to the juxtaposition of the Karban Mincha, evident from the opening of the Korban. The Nefesh Ki Takriv Korban Mincha. Just as we discussed with the Ola, one can wake up in the morning and decide, I don't want to offer an animal sacrifice this morning, but rather a korban mincha. I would like to bring a flower offering, a meal offering. So chapter two seemingly starts with its own independent introduction, focused this time on the korban mincha, while the original introduction that we saw yesterday of the Ola prepared us for animal sacrifices. So our question is, why does the text interrupt its discussion of animal sacrifices and start a new discussion concerning the flower offerings and only thereafter continue with the karban shlamim, another type of animal sacrifice, which complements the ola? This is in fact one of the Abarbanel's questions on our Persia. Why does the Torah discuss the laws of Mincha and all of its varieties prior to the shlamim? After all, since the shlamim is taken from the cattle or from the herds, we would have thought that it should be commanded prior to the mincha. This is further corroborated by the literary style of the Torah, where we find that a general rule or a general topic is usually formulated with the term ki, 
like we saw yesterday with the introduction of the Karban Ola, Daberel Bnei Yisrael, Vamarta Lehem, Adam, Kia Krimikem, Karban Lahashem, and thereafter the formulation of the term Im. In other words, a general rule will open with the word Ki, and the details are introduced with the word Im. This phenomenon is evident with the introduction of the Karban Ola. Ava Adam Kia Krivmikem, and beginning immediately thereafter, Im Ola Carbano, followed by Imin Son Carbano, and then Imin Of Carbano. And if we would skip over the Mincha that begins with Nefesh Ki Takriv again, we continue with the Shlamim, the Imzeva Hashlamim, giving us the impression that the Shlamim is actually a detail or another possibility of an animal sacrifice. So the general introduction of Parshat Bayikra seems to deal with a person who wishes to bring an animal sacrifice, and thereafter the text starts to list the various options available to this person. The first possibility is that of an Ola, which may then be further subdivided into other categories of animal sacrifices, beginning with Im, Im Zevach Shlamim. However, the order of the different sacrifices is not as we would have expected. After the laws pertaining to the Ola in chapter 1, the text, surprisingly enough, goes on to discuss not the continuation of the details of animal sacrifices such as the shlamim, but rather the flower offering, the mincha. This sacrifice cannot represent an additional instance that falls under the general introduction with which the parsha of the sacrifices began because we're no longer speaking about an animal sacrifice, but rather a vegetable sacrifice, a flower sacrifice, and therefore we start all over again instead of the natural continuation of the detail with the word ve'im, we start with v'nefesh ki takriv. And when a person offers a mincha sacrifice, so without doubt this introduction is meant to serve as a parallel to the previous one, that of the Ola. That's why chapter 2 starts with its own independent introduction, because the Torah is now going to discuss a new type of karban. So the question is obviously, why does the Torah interrupt its discussion of animal sacrifices and start a new discussion concerning the flower offering, and then only thereafter continue with another animal sacrifice, the Zevach HaShlamim? This is in fact one of the Abraham questions on our Persha. Why does the Torah discuss the laws of Menchan, all of its varieties, prior to the Shlamim? After all, since the Shlamim is taken from cattle or from the herds, we would have thought that it should be commanded prior to the Mincha. The Malbim explains that apparently the Mincha is mentioned in close proximity with the Ola because of the internal connection between them. For example, Rav David Zvi shows that in essence the Mincha, like the Ola, is offered in its entirety to Hashem, so that even though the Torah mentions, as we just read in the Pasuk, which we generally do not find in Parshat Vayikra, what the Kohanim do with the leftovers of the sacrifices after they've been burned on the altar, here the Torah gives us the impression that the consumption of the Kohen as he eats the leftovers of the Karban Mencha is as if it's a continuation of what's being consumed by Hashem through the Mizbeach. Thus, the Mincha in essence belongs to the altar, belongs to Hashem, even if the Kohanim usually eat part of it. And although the Kohanim eat of the Mincha, it's supposed to be regarded as having been offered entirely to God, and the Kohanim are given the privilege of eating as an extension from God's table, as it were. So because of this connection between the Ola and the Mincha, the Tzekshak supposes these two sacrifices, even though the Mincha is not one of the categories that fall under the first heading, 
dealing particularly with animal sacrifices. As such, the Abarbanel explains that the Mincha offerings are mentioned prior to the Shlamim for these two reasons. Firstly, in order to prioritize the level of the Ola, and the Mincha is among them. Therefore, after mentioning the Ola from the cattle, which is the most superior of the Karbanot, and the Ola of the flocks, the next level, followed by the Ola of the birds, the Torah mentions the Mincha, which is also a type of Ola, one level lower than that of the Ola of birds, since an animal of any type is still superior to a meal sacrifice. But the Shlamim is not an Ola, and therefore it's mentioned last. This essential connection between the two sacrifices of the Ola and the Mincha helps us appreciate the intention of the person who offers them. Each one involves an attitude of complete sacrifice before Hashem a psychological sense of unworthiness to stand before God with an attitude of honor and awe, what we generally call Yirat Hashem, as opposed to what we're going to see manifest through the Karban Shlamim, a greater expression of Ahavat Hashem. But at the same time, there still seems to be a fundamental difference between the Ola and the Mencha, and therefore each one is regarded with its own introduction with the terminology of Kitakriv. But if we look very carefully, we find that the Mencha as opposed to the Ola, does not begin with the term of Adam ki akriv mikem korban lahashem, but rather the nefesh ki takriv korban mincha lahashem. Chazal note this discrepancy and ask for what reason is the introduction to the mincha changed with the word nefesh? An answer, HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, who is it that usually brings a mincha? A poor person. And therefore I consider it as though he sacrifices his nefesh, his soul before me. But this discrepancy in the introduction may also tell us something else in the context of sacrifices, because we know that nefesh has a clear association with the actual dam, with the soul of the flesh that is in the blood, and therefore when one sacrifices and thereby sprinkles the blood upon the mizbeach, it's as if he's embodying in the blood life itself. We may therefore propose that in the case of those sacrifices where the blood is sprinkled on the Mizbeach, we can't even speak of a nefesh offering the sacrifice because the nefesh, or at least that which symbolizes the nefesh, namely the blood, is sacrificed on the altar. However, in the case of the mincha, where there is no blood, so the nefesh is not offered upon the Mizbeach, that's when the Torah uses the term, the nefesh offers the sacrifice. In other words, by the act of sacrificing an animal, the worshiper declares that his life, his very existence, belongs to Hashem, and therefore he offers a life upon the Mizbeach. By offering a mincha, he is declaring something not about his life, but rather about his sustenance, about his food and his other vital needs. A person brings his meal to the Mishkan, and as we just mentioned in the Psukim, he adds oil, a symbol of his wealth, and levona, a symbol of contentment, and declares that all of this doesn't belong to him, and he's not worthy of it, and therefore he brings it to his true owner, Ribono Shalolam, the master of the universe. This idea is also expressed in the quantity of fine flour that is always required for a mincha offering, namely a tenth of an ephah. This quantity represents a person's food for one day, as we know already from Shmot Perek Tetzayin, that this was the requisite amount of the Omer, the amount that a person was able to collect every day from the man, a tenth of an ifah. By man offering this tenth of an ifah to Hashem in the form of the Mincha offering, he basically is giving up his food, his daily ration of sustenance, 
and expressing that the sustenance ultimately belongs to Hashem. Herein, the Torah expresses the distinction between an animal sacrifice and a flower sacrifice. When one brings an animal, one is recognizing God as the creator of life. When one brings his food, he recognizes Hashem as the sustainer of life. The capability of creating life belongs exclusively to Hashem. No one, including the Kohanim, participates with Hashem in this endeavor of bringing life, and therefore no one may eat of the Olah. However, Hashem did afford the Kohanim a portion in the second area, that of sustaining life, and therefore they may eat of the Mincha. For the Kohanim bless the people, and therefore participate with HaKadosh Baruch Hu in sustaining and maintaining the lives of Am Yisrael. Let us now continue with some of the options that one has within the category of the Mincha. As we already mentioned, this category begins with the generalization of Nefesh Ki Takriv Karban Mincha Hashem, And now we're going to hear the specifics, the fundamentals, what are the different types of flower offerings that one may bring. So we continue with Pasuk Dalid. V'chi Takriv Karban Mincha Ma'afet Tanur, Solet Chalot Matzot Bulolo Bashemen, Or Kike Matzot Mishuchim Bashemen. In addition to being able to bring simply the fine flour and then adding oil and spices, Pasuk Dalit tells us that when one brings a meal offering, it could also be a ma'afet tanur, baked in the oven. So this is going to consist of unleavened cakes of fine flour mingled with oil or unleavened wafers, depending on how you actually create this ma'afet, either as chalot matzot, more of a flat form, or rikike matzot, more of a wafer form. And this is when I personally become very excited with regard to the option of bringing karbanot, recognizing that within the general formulations and requisites of bringing sacrifices, there definitely is, as we mentioned yesterday, an expression of one's own creativity and unique desires of getting closer to HaKadosh Baruch But your mincha options are not just limited to bringing the fine flour, nor to even bringing these pita-style of ma'afetanur, but as we continue with pasukei, ve'im mencha al hamachavat karbancha solat lula b'shemen matzatihiyeh. You could also offer offer the meal offering baked on a griddle, in which case it comes out more of a pancake form, and this is also going to be with fine flour together with oil. Followed which patot otapitim ve'atzakta al hashemen menchahid. These two forms, though, of the mafet tanur and the machavat make it a little more difficult for the Kohen to be able to take a komet, literally a handful, to place on the mizbeach. And therefore, in both cases, he must break it into pieces and then pour the oil, and this will be considered the mincha. The next option, pasuk zayim, ve'im minchat marcheshet karbanecha, solet bashemin te'aseh. There is a fourth way that one can bring a korban, and that is going to be through a marcheshet, a deep frying pan, in which case the mincha will come out looking more like sufganiyot, and this is also made with fine flour with oil. I hope you're noting in my voice how excited I am about these different options of menachot, as I also perform workshops with students to try to make these karbanot come alive, and it's always a lot of fun preparing menachot in a toaster oven like a mafet tanur, preparing other menachot in a griddle, literally a frying pan for the menchat machvat, and then taking huge deep pans, filling them with oil, albeit a little dangerous, keeping in mind that this is what was done in the chatzer of the mishkan, and uh, making little sufganiyot to literally illustrate for students the different options of bringing menachot. So let us continue now with Pasukhet. Veheveita tamencha asher yaseh me'ela ladonai, vekriva al hakohen vehigisha el hamezbeach. 
and after one prepare their meal offering in one of the aforementioned manners, then he brings it to the Kohen, which ultimately, as we've already mentioned, is like bringing it to the Mizbeach. And the Kohen takes the Komet, which is going to be called here the Askara. This is the memorial of uh, the amount that goes on the Mizbeach. This is going to be placed as uh, an offering that will become Reach Nichoach Lahashem, Pasuk Yud, just as we mentioned in the introduction, That which is left of the meal offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, and uh, this is considered Kodesh Kadoshim, as we said, equivalent to an extension of eating what is offered on the Mizbeach. A very nice ending, which is going to introduce other laws unique here to the Mincha, Pasuk Yud Aleph, Kol HaMincha Asher Takrivu Ladunai, Lo Teaseh Chametz, Kichol Saor V'chol Dvash, Lo Taktiru Mimenu, Eishe Ladunai. No meal offering, which one brings to the Mizbeach, should be made with leaven, Saor, or with any honey. The next pasuk concludes, Karban Reshit Takrivotam, one may bring them as a first fruit offering to Hashem, velamizbeach lo ya'alu, but one is never allowed to bring the honey or the sa'or to the mizbeach l'reach nichoach. Given the flow of the text until this point, the prohibition of leaven and fruit-based sweets, as we find Rashi and Ibn Ezra, explain that this is the honey, the honey of the tmarim. This seems rather striking because until this point and throughout the remainder of Parshat Bayikra, the Torah details the appropriate objects and methods for the various type of karbanot, but no other prohibitions are mentioned. In addition to the fact that we already know from the very first chapter of Sefer Vayikra that one is not allowed to come to the Mishkan and bring anything he pleases. We've already seen with regard to the Ola that only certain types of animals are allowed to be brought. The Torah doesn't have to mention explicitly all the different animal sacrifices that may not be brought. And therefore, we're a little surprised, as the Abarbanel formulates, why was it necessary to state that Saor and Vash cannot be offered? For it's known that it's not permitted to offer anything other than that which God has commanded. For example, regarding the birds, it was commanded to bring from pigeons and from doves, and therefore was wholly unnecessary to prohibit offerings of chickens and ducks. If so, why is it necessary to explicitly prohibit Saor and Vash? What is the inner meaning and philosophical rationale of this prohibition? The Rambam, consistent with his understanding of karbanot as being anti-pagan cult of practices, explains similarly in Moren Nebuchim that the prohibition of the offering of leaven and honey was part of a programmatic effort to distinguish between idol worship and the worship of God. If so, it's precisely because the offering of leaven and honey constituted the recognized and consequently natural practices that the Torah must explicitly prohibit their offering. However, the Rambam's explanation is somewhat inadequate, not only with regard to the explication of the Torah, not only not to offer chametz, but particularly to bring the karban mincha from matzot, in addition to uh, the pasuk that we read that actually does allow for saor and vash to be part of the mysterious and never again mentioned karban rishit. The sacrifice of the first products. Perhaps in order to understand the significance of the prohibition to not bring chametz and the commandment to bring matzah, we have to go back to appreciate the significance of matzah. Well, we already know from Sefer Shmot that matzah symbolizes the humble or afflicted, or as we call lechem oni, literally 
the bread of affliction, one of the terms that's incorporated in Brit Bain Haptarim, Vi'inuotam Abrameotshana. So as preparation for redemption, Am Yisrael are told in Shmot Perak Yudbet that they are required to be fully conscious of the state from which they are being redeemed. They must eat matzah and maror with their karban pesach, one of the tools for cultivating slavery awareness. However, in addition to matzah symbolizing the servitude of Am Yisrael, we find that it undergoes a slow metamorphosis, for on the evening that they eat the Karban Pesach, the Paschal sacrifice, they're also told that they're going to eat in preparation of leaving Mitzrayim, in preparation for redemption, a transition in the national psychology and historical status of Am Yisrael. So as such, the first consumption of matzah does not only serve to remind them of their past, but initiates a certain change. It constitutes a symbol of slavery, but also a symbol of preparation for redemption. If matzah symbolizes the process through which Am Yisrael left Mitzrayim and were redeemed, then logically, chameh should somehow symbolize the opposite thereof. Whereas unleavened bread, matzah, symbolizes the redemption process and the beginnings of Am Yisrael's journey, Chameit's leaven bread symbolizes the arrival, the end of the process, the end of the journey leading us to Eretz Yisrael. This brings us back to the mysterious Karban Reshit mentioned in the Mencha narrative, which is the appropriate occasion where one must bring an offering of chameitz. For while the Torah does not explicate what is exactly this Karban Reshit, most commentaries correlate it with the one time that the Torah demands an offering of chameitz, which is the Mencha Chadasha. After the Pesach time and after counting seven full weeks, Am Yisrael must bring a new grain offering. These are the Lechem Bikurim of Shavuot, the one time where we are allowed to bring chametz to the Mizbeach, because this time chametz comprises the conceptual opposite of matzah. For if the unleavened bread symbolizes the beginning of the process, then as we mentioned, the chametz symbolizes the end of the process. Whereas matzah has not yet risen, not yet full, representing only the beginnings, chametz has already risen and represents the ends. Like the leaven, honey also finds its place in the offering of the first fruit. For dvash is not the honey of bees, but rather the honey of fruits, the dvash tmarim. So like saor, dvash symbolizes the goodness of the land given by Hashem, and like chametz, the sweet fruit constitutes the completion of the story of Yetziat Mitzrayim, the arrival at the ends of the national journey of redemption. So while Matzah and Pesach symbolize process and the potential, Dvash, Chametz, the end of the process, Shavuot, all symbolize the realization and actuality. Matzah is about becoming, Saor and Dvash are about being. Leaven and honey are not somehow inherently or metaphysically deficient or insufficient for an offering to Hashem, but rather, are too expressive of fullness that is in consonant with the sentiments that we're supposed to have as we bring a karban. We've already discussed how the doctrine of karbanel propounded by the Torah constitutes a basic means for approaching Hashem. The sacrifice constitutes not so much Hashem's need, but man's need, the means by which he offers up his very self to Hashem. As opposed to the pagan model of sacrifice, the object of sacrifice becomes not the meal of the divine, but a representation of the person, the nefesh, who offers the sacrifice, and as symbolic means to bridge the human divine rift. 
So what constitutes the appropriate means of approaching Hashem? Should man represent himself with the symbols of satiated fullness represented through Seor and Vash? And while this may be appropriate when one wants to express thanksgiving to Hashem, they seem to be totally inappropriate for an act of approaching Hashem, raising oneself up to the altar. Instead, the Torah mandates bring matzah, bring unleavened bread with all of its humble lowliness, its potential, and the possibility for becoming. The Pasuk immediately thereafter, Pasuk Yud Gimel, tells us what one must place upon a korban mincha. V'chol korban minchatcha b'melech timlach, v'lo tashpit melech brit elohecha me'al minchatecha, al kol korbancha takriv melech. Every meal offering must have salt. And the Torah repeats, lo tashpit melech brit elohecha. Sacrifice may not lack. Notice it doesn't just say salt, but the salt of the covenant. What does this mean? The commandment to add salt to sacrifices is not merely another detail of the laws of sacrifices. The Torah refers to this as the salt of the covenant of your God. Salt symbolizes eternal existence, just as the brit elokecha is eternal. Sacrifices represent the eternal covenant between God and the nation of Israel, and therefore it's appropriate to bring with them salt, something that preserves, something that symbolizes eternity. Salt, however, we know, also symbolizes destruction. Destruction and decomposition are the basis, though, for growth. Although at first they appear to be opposites, destruction and growth originate from the same divine source. The Torah does not only state a positive command to add salt to the sacrifices, but also addresses the corresponding negative aspect of the commandment by warning against bringing sacrifices without salt. And this reflects the dual nature of the covenant both which encompasses the positive and the negative, the existence and destruction. By bringing salt with the sacrifice, this reinforces our knowledge that all of reality, with all of its contradictions, stems from the same divine source, the divine source of God, whom we thereby bring our flower offerings as another act of submission. And lastly, we hear of one other type of mincha, not literally a flower offering, but a grain offering that's offered from the first of the grains, the last three psukim of the parshia of the mincha, ve'im takriv minchat bikurim ladunai, aviv kaloi ba'esh, keres karmel takriv et minchat bikurecha, ve'natata alaha shemen ve'samta alaha levona minchahi, ve'ektir ha'kawenet askarata, migirsa u'mishamna al kol levonota ishe ladunai. If you bring the first of the fruits, but in this case, the first of the grains before Hashem, you also have to put oil upon it. And you also have to put the frankincense, the livona, because this is also a meal offering, even if it's not with a fine flour. And the Kohen, the priest, will take the askara from amongst the grains, the komets that we discussed, that will be offered upon the mizbeach, and just like the ola, will also serve as ishe lahashem. Tomorrow we will continue with the last of the voluntary offerings, namely that of the shlamim, known as the zevach shlamim, another type of animal sacrifice, but one with a very different goal than the aula and mencha, one that will not be served or express submission of yirah, but rather thanksgiving and ahava.